Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you. Worship team, I love that song, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And I feel free to preach like 45 minutes today. Just because it is also a new series we're starting on the church, the Tapestry of Grace. I'm going to try not to do that this morning, but this is a new series and I'm excited about it. We're excited about it and we hope you'll hang in there with us as we think about what it means to be church together. Now, I have confessed to many of you in this setting before, I know it's going to be hard to believe, but I'm not the most optimistic person in the world. If you know me personally, you go, yeah, duh. If you don't know me personally, that might be surprising because I have energy and I seem optimistic. But I'm not the most optimistic person in the world. Like, you know that saying that some people can find the silver lining in any dark cloud? I can find the dark lining in any silver cloud. That's like a spiritual gift I have. So a few years ago, my family gave me a book that had come out called The Book of Awesome. Does any, any of you know The Book of Awesome? It came from a website. It's just a guy who writes these little blurbs about things in life that are, well, awesome. Exactly. And so it, it's, it's the kind of thing that when we think about, when we reflect upon it, it, it kind of creates a sense of gratitude in our lives, gratefulness. The awesome stuff of everyday life, right? And we go, that's awesome. Well, apparently I needed another one because now there's the book of even more awesome. And now I've got that one. So I wanted to share some awesome things with you this morning. Just little things from life that when they happen, you go, awesome, right? You can help me this morning by saying awesome with me, all right? When a cop finally passes you after driving behind you for a long while, awesome, right? Oh, man, you know that feeling. You're like, are my taillights out? Is my registration up to date? Am I going to speed limit? Why are other people passing me and the cop is not going around to get them? What's happening? And then they pass, and you say, awesome. When your dog's really excited when you come back home, awesome, right? Our dog, I mean, we could be gone five hours. We come home, she flips out. Then we go outside for ten minutes, come back, flip out. Same flip out, right? Always feel valuable. Always feel good. It's awesome. Or how about this one? When a baby falls asleep on you. Awesome, right? If you've had that experience, you know what it's like. You get hungry for it. You go looking for it. Does anyone have a tired baby? Right? You want to take that baby on and make it your own. Uh, that's awesome. Or one more here. Finding something you lost a long time ago after you already gave up looking for it. Awesome. The author says there's three phases to this. The first is the alarm. I lost it. I can't find it. I don't know where it is, right? You feel that alarm inside of you. Then the second phase is the search, right? You go, you turn over every couch cushion in the house. You get all the people and you link arms and you go through the cornfield trying to find it, right? And then the third phase is grieving. It's gone. I'll never see it again. My favorite whatever. The perfect whatever. And then maybe months, maybe years later, you get out that suitcase that you took on a travel somewhere. You pull out a winter coat. You reach in the pocket. You unzip that thing, and there it is, the thing you lost. Awesome. Life's full of little amazing, awesome things. But here's another thing that's awesome. You ready for it? A church whose faith is observable through their embodied efforts of love demonstrating hope to the world all around them. 
awesome. <laughs> you need to hear that again, don't you? A church whose faith, a church whose faith is observable through their embodied efforts of love, demonstrating hope to the world all around them. Awesome. This is what Thessalonians about. This is what the letters to the churches are about. This is what Pastor Joe and I are going to try to talk to you about. What is the church? Who is the church? What is the church for? How are we a part of the church? And this is what Thessalonians is about. But again, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but the church has sort of fallen out. The church is not near as important or central as it once was, even with Christians. We hear all sorts of things, right, from people. The church isn't important. It's irrelevant. It's ancient. It's like a mausoleum in there. It's outdated. What's it good for? Have you heard, heard any of these things? Have you felt any of these things before? Why do I need it? You know, it's just a place that takes my time, it takes my money, and mostly it makes me feel guilty. You ever felt that way? And then there's this. I can be a spiritual person, maybe even a Christian, without the church. Thank you very much. Why do I need to go? Why do I need to go? Besides, all you Christians do in churches fight with one another. And then split constantly. No thanks, pass. Or another one I like is, well, this church isn't helpful, so I'll just go to that church that better fits my needs. But here's the thing, I don't really blame people who say that. Who I blame is us. I blame us and the church. I don't think that we've embodied what the church really is, and so we've lost our attraction. We haven't embodied what the church is really supposed to be, so people no longer see why it's important, why they should be a part of it, and they're not drawn to it. And so we come to Thessalonica in the letter to the, to the Thessalonians, which is hard to say. You might want to have your Bible open to those first ten verses because I'm going to pick up some words and you might want to just check out and make sure I'm not making things up as I go along. The story of Thessalonica can actually be read in Acts chapter 15 through 18. You might want to go back and take a look at that. And there you're going to hear about Paul's travels with Timothy and Silas to Thessalonica. The letter, which might be the oldest letter or the first letter that Paul writes to a church, the, church is, the letter is addressed to the church, made it primarily of Gentiles in Thessalonica, and he uses the Greek word ecclesia. Now, you biblical scholars know that word, right? Ecclesia. We translate it as church. But the Gentiles would have heard that word as referring to a formal or informal public gathering to conduct public affairs. That's how that word was used in Gentile settings. A formal or informal public gathering, often to conduct public affairs. So the word, as the Gentiles in Thessalonica, who have become Christians now, would have heard this, it would have evoked both theological and political imagery. The ecclesia is a public body whose ultimate loyalty was not to the empire, but to God. But it's public. People see it. People know what's going on. 
it's set off from the rest of the public. Therefore, it has a public witness. Are you with me so far? This body then that Paul is giving thanks for, and you can read this in the first couple verses there, this body, this ecclesia, Paul says, is in God. Interesting phrase there. Theologians translate that, biblical scholars translate that in a couple ways. One as, as, as in and also assembled by. This ecclesia is assembled by God and it's in God. It is to participate, therefore, in the ongoing work of the Trinitarian God. That's what it exists for. That's why it is there. The church is in God, and the church is assembled by God. And get this, the church inhabits God. Pastor Mateo said something kind of like that today, the space, right? The church inhabits God, and that means the church inhabits God. The cruciform God. Now, I don't know if you're familiar or remember that phrase. We've used it before. Cruciform, cross, right? Cross. Cruciform means the way of the cross. Cruciform means that the church is to live in accordance to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to live a cruciform life. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. We're doing some heavy theology lifting this morning, Joe. So Paul gives thanks for them because their work flows from and embodies their allegiance or total commitment to God. So Paul can give thanks for them. Give thanks for them for you because this is what you do. This is who you are. This is what you're living. This is what you're becoming. This is on this is you on the way, right? In verse four, three, I want you to particularly notice something interesting. Paul is going to note, he notes their works of faith, cruciform acts, efforts or labors of love. That is extending themselves in the same way that Christ Jesus did. See Philippians chapter 2. That's a footnote, by the way. And their perseverance or steadfast hope. You get that? And the hope is in Christ's return and the protection from the coming wrath. Did you catch it? Faith, love, and hope. Sound familiar? Paul likes those three words. He uses them in many places. Faith, love, and hope. That's good stuff. Right there, in the first three verses, we've already get, we're already developing an ecclesiology of the church, a theology of the church. What is the church for? What is, this, what is the church on the way to becoming? But all this begs the question, right? How did this church come to be? How did this amazing church come to be? Well, Paul says it came to be because God's power was given to you. It didn't just come in word or proclamation or speech. It came in power. And you know what we might call that power? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. 
came upon the church. The early church often measured whether God was act- active somewhere in the world by whether the Spirit had shown up. And the Spirit showed up in a bunch of places that confused and surprised the church, didn't it? Oh, the, the Spirit's with the Gentiles? Oh, the Spirit's with the Roman family? The Spirit's, right? So, how does the church come to be? First, because the power of the Spirit was given to them. Secondly, he says, they imitated the Lord and Paul and Silas and Timothy. You imitated the Lord and you imitated us. And then you were formed into the ecclesia, the church, that became a witness in every place. I'm just, I'm just walking you through it. You with me? Just walking you through it. Power is given. Imitation happens. And they're formed into a witness that goes everywhere. That brings hope everywhere. Now, what particularly did they do that caught everyone's attention, where they became a witness? Well, here's where it gets kind of interesting. And we see this later in Thessalonians, and you can read about it in Acts. The Thessalonians turned from idols. These Gentiles are living in Thessalonica, where there is a civil religion. Religion permeates everything they do there. And it's a pagan religion with all sorts of gods. There's a god for this and a god for that and a god for this, and you've got to give them all honor. And by the way, if something bad happens, it's probably because you ticked off one of the gods. And now we're going to make amends. We've got to keep the gods happy, right? And the Thessalonians turn from idols. And this leads to persecution. Now, persecution is so far from some of our experiences being Christians, it's hard for us to get. For some of you that have maybe immigrated here to the United States, it might not be that far from your own experience. You may know people in various parts of the world who are under persecution, or if you've been involved in missionary work or know some missionaries, you know that this goes on. But think about it for a second. There's all kinds of persecution. They're living in a place where there's no separation between religion and politics. Religion and commerce. So these baby Gentile Christians start not going to certain kinds of ceremonies because the idols and the, and the, and the, and the worship that's going on there is not the worship of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection. And so that's a public witness, and it starts to have impact because people start to say things like, well, you know those weird people over there? They don't hang out with the people we do. And so pretty soon, these Christians experience both some social isolation, and maybe they start, stop fraternizing in their places of business or don't want to sell to them when they come to their places of business. And pretty soon, it can even lead, and it does, to violence. To be the church in Thessalonica is to be dangerous. It's to put yourself in danger. To turn from idols may lead to persecution. But it was faith and love and hope at work. Now here's something really interesting too. This comes from Andy Johnson, New Testament scholar. He says it wasn't faith that led to their turning from idols. Listen really carefully. It wasn't faith that led to their turning from idols. 
Faith is the act of turning. Now, that may seem very small, but it's very large. It's not faith that led to their turning from idols. Faith is the act of turning. Andy Johnson says, faith that is not turning is empty. Faith that's not turning is empty. I love how the Common English Bible translates the word metanoia or repentance, which has to do with this faith is turning. Whenever the word repentance in many of your Bibles shows up, in the Common English Bible, it's translated this way, changing your heart and changing your life. It's not just changing something in here. It's not just changing my mind. It's changing my heart and my life. It's a faith that involves turning. Now that seems kind of like a duh, doesn't it, in some ways? But is it possible that we've developed a faith that doesn't involve turning? I think it is. I think it's because, again, in the West primarily, in Protestant evangelicalism, we've developed faith around this idea of a kind of intellectual exercise. So someone says, are you a Christian? And you'd say, yes. And they'd say, why? And you'd say, because I believe X, Y, and Z. You with me? Did, did you, was any, were any of you caravans back in the day in the Nazarene church? We had to memorize the I believes. You remember that? I believe that's what makes me a Christian. Or I'm part of, I'm a member at this church, that makes me a Christian. And Christianity, again, or faith, becomes a kind of intellectual assent to propositional beliefs. I believe right. Do you believe right? Are you a Christian? Are you the right kind of Christian? Are you Christian enough? What do you believe? What don't you believe? And in many ways, I will still argue, and many are with me, so I'm not alone up here, <laughs> that Christianity has been turned into kind of an intellectual exercise. It's a faith that might not involve turning. But faith is turning, we hear in the New Testament, and we hear it in these letters. It is embodied. It's how we live out our love and our hope. Faith, love, hope. Faith is how we turn, like the Thessalonians, away from idols. It's how we live out our love and our hope. And man, I have met a lot of hopeless Christians have you met any hopeless Christians? Do you know any of them? I know you do. Are any of you hopeless Christians? It's really almost antithetical to me. Again, someone who admits he's not very optimistic. But I'm not really sure how you can put hopeless and Christian in the same sentence. I don't think Paul would have done that. I don't think Jesus would have done that. It doesn't really make sense. Hopeless Christians, why are there hopeless Christians? Well, I think there's hopeless Christians, just Brad's opinion. Because there's a certain group of us that are sitting around in our intellectual vacuums bemoaning that the world doesn't think like we do. Oof, I'm getting real personal and also maybe in trouble. That's all right. Not a lot of amens so far. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, some of us sit around thinking about faith as intellectual assent to something. I believe this and I don't believe that. And we look around and we go, oh, look at all these people. They don't believe it the way we do. Oh, my goodness. Hopeless. That's how hopeless Christians are formed. 
But do you know what the antidote for hopelessness is for the Christian? You don't want to know. I'm just going to sit down. Thank you. The antidote for hopelessness, wait for it, is the church. You're like, what? You got to say more. I will say more. I still got 30 minutes according to my watch. Oh my goodness, time is going. Church is the antidote for hopelessness because the church is an embodied body. It moves away from Christianity as an intellectual exercise whenever it works out its faith through efforts of love leading to hope. Whenever we turn and engage in acts of love, we create hope in ourselves and others, and hopelessness goes away. It requires action. I love verbs. We'll come back to that later. So here's one of the reasons church is very important. I call this a moment of science with Brad. Are you with me? A moment of science with Brad. I've talked to you about this before, but you don't remember because you don't listen. <laughs> the church is one of the first places where we have the opportunity to imitate Christ and one another. You heard it in Thessalonians. The church is where we imitate Christ and one another. The church is our laboratory. The church is our internship. The church is our petri dish for you biology people. This is where we practice it. This is where we learn it. This is where we grow. This is why you need to be a part of it. Because we hang out with older, wiser, and sometimes younger, wiser Christians who teach us a thing or two. And pretty soon, we start, unbeknownst to ourselves, begin to imitate them. And we begin to look like them and sound like them and act like them. And pretty soon, if Christ is the one who we are ultimately imitating, pretty soon, we, the church, are engaged in works of faith, efforts of love, and steadfast hope, just like Thessalonica. Come on, church. That's why you need to be here. Because, here comes the science, because our brains are wired to imitate. This is what I've talked to you about before. Our brains are wired to imitate. When you watch someone doing something, your brain fires like you're doing it. Isn't that fascinating? If someone uses a hammer, you watch him using a hammer, the premotor frontal cortex, that's impressive, isn't it? Don't you know that? The prefrontal motor cortex in your brain that would fire when you use a hammer, it fires when you watch someone else use a hammer. Your brain, neuroscientists tell us, run offline mental simulations of what you see going on in front of you. But here's where it gets really interesting. So what? Well, the so what is that it primes you to actually engage in that behavior. There are studies that show if you watch someone else engage in a compassionate act, wait for it, you are more likely to engage in a compassionate act like it just afterwards. Didn't God make us wonderful, amazing creatures? <laughs> he knows how this works, and Paul seemed to know how it works too. But imitation doesn't only create new behaviors, it creates new thoughts, it creates new feelings. Emotions can also be imitated. 
You ever notice that? When someone's very upset, you might become upset. and very sad, you might become sad. When someone's very joyful, you might become joyful. But imitation also creates desire. It creates desires in us. Have you ever been in a room with a bunch of little kids and there's all sorts of toys around and there's one toy that no one seems to care about until one kid finds it and starts playing with it and then what happens? Every kid wants that toy. It's called mimetic desire. We imitate one another. It's what advertising is all about. I recently bought a pair of shoes because I was told that everybody loves these shoes and they're the most comfortable shoes in the world and you got to have them and I bought them and guess what? They're just like all my other shoes. We're not that great. But I desired those shoes. Listen, if you want to act like Jesus, then you need to hang around other people that act like Jesus. If you want to desire the things of Christ, then you better hang out with people who desire the things of Christ. And, and, and I'm sorry, but you got to do it more than once a week. to do it more than once a week and if you're able to get here in the room friends online get here in the room because it's our whole embodied bodies that we're imitating what we're doing what we're engaging in how we're acting what we're feeling what we're desiring john wesley our theological great-grandfather once said there's no holiness but social holiness there's some debate about what he meant by that what I think he meant was that you can't become a holy person all by yourself. You can only become a holy person by being in social context with other holy people. That's how we become holy. I've been uh, 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 radical enough to actually put in writing, I'm not a Christian. We are Christians. We are Christians. I have people in my life who make me better, a better Christian. Now we're imitating Christ, right? Don't make any mistake there. <laughs> Imitation doesn't always lead to good things. We need to make sure that we're imitating the right one, right? Imitating Christ. But if we get together and engage in this thing called church this way, we will see faith working it out, itself out through acts and labors of love and bringing hope to the whole world. To the whole world. You're going to imitate something. You're going to imitate someone. And if you're not here engaging in Christian community on a regular basis, imitating other Christians, yes, who are imperfect, and we're all imperfect. We know that. We're on the way, right? Even these churches, they're going to, even when Paul says, I love you, he's going to say, remember, don't do that. Right? Which means they must be struggling with that. We're, we're not perfect. Your church is made up of hypocrites. Yep. Confessing hypocrites, hopefully. I don't know any organization that's not made up of hypocrites, but I only know one that's supposed to confess when they do. That's us. So you're going to imitate someone. If you're not here, you're going to start to imitate other idols. And if we turn to false gods, we lose our hope. And Paul says in verse 10 that the ecclesia waits in participatory anticipation from God's rescue from the coming wrath. So I have to just say something about God's coming wrath. Because that causes a lot of trouble for some folks. What does it mean that we wait, and I'm bringing some theological words into this, in participatory anticipation for God's rescue from the coming wrath? Well, the, God's wrath in the Bible 
has been described as what could be called God's restorative justice, when God will make all things right. Are you with me? Okay. But it's not like what many of us have heard and been taught. It's not about an angry God up in heaven who gets his feelings hurt because we don't believe the right things. That's not what God's wrath is about. God's wrath in Scripture is the natural consequences those individuals will receive who choose to worship false idols. It's the natural consequences that will occur for those who choose to worship false idols. It's like we say to our kid, don't put your finger in the socket. And the kid puts their finger in the socket. Natural consequences. That's just what's going to happen. I told you. I'm not mad at you. I wasn't punishing you. I just told you don't do it, and you did it. Now look what happened. You with me? That's God's wrath. And it will come. But here's where it's also interesting. It has already come. Romans, 18, or Romans 1, 18 through 19, talks about the present wrath. That God's wrath, as I just described it, is already with us. It's a wrath that happens whenever we violate our vertical covenant relationship with God and begin to worship other false idols because that inevitably leads to violence in our horizontal relationships with one another in the world. Let me say that again. God's wrath, the natural consequences of those who worship false idols, occurs in the present whenever you and I, the church, begin to worship false idols, we put something else, politics or, or, or your love of the Philadelphia Eagles, I don't know what it is, you put something else up there over God, you violate the covenantal vertical relationship with God, because, and when you do that, it can't help but lead to violence in our horizontal relationships with one another, and that's violence. It happens in social media. It happens in person. Go on and on, but I will not. The wrath is with us. Do you see now more why we need the church so desperately? A church who receives not just the word, but the power of God and imitates the Lord together, becoming a public witness of hope. We can be different. This life is worth living. There is goodness and justice even now. There is care, and there is healing, and there is equity, and there is, friends, believe it or not, enough to go around. There are moments of awesomeness. And we, by the power of the work, the power of the Spirit that is at work within us, get to demonstrate that hope to the world. Are they seeing that hope, or are they just seeing us sitting around going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hope you free, flee from the coming wrath. The church is an embodied body, imitating God in Christ Jesus, working out our faith through love, leading to enduring hope. And this gets people talking. This gets people talking. Give you a quick example here, and I'm almost done, I promise. A Christian community in southern Bangladesh provides a clear picture of how a contemporary church might engage their culture in putting God's character of peace and justice and hope on display. Most in this community come from the low caste background. We understand caste, right, in India. The lower caste are considered not even a human by the upper caste. Most in this community come from low caste backgrounds, and they suffer oppression on a daily basis. They're not allowed to go places and do things. 
It's an ism. That oppression only worsened when this group of people became Christians. One of the poorest members of the community, always seeking the good for his Christian brothers and sisters, donated a plot of land so that they would have a gathering place. As they met, they discussed one of the biggest issues in their life together, that is, their access to clean, safe water. There was a communal well in the village, but because they were Christians and low caste, others in their village would no longer allow them to draw, to draw water from it. And so they had to walk three miles one way for water. They had seen numerous church members get sick and watch some of their children die when they had to resort to a closer but unsafe water source. With the support of a network of other churches, they were able to build a tube, uh, a tube well, on the donated plot to supply the church community with clean water. When it was finished, they had a ceremony of thanksgiving and dedicated to the, the well to God's glory. Since they were banned from a source of, of life itself, their being banned from using the central well was an essentially an act of violence against them. Right? As God's people, they were in effect bearing the consequences within themselves of God's current wrath poured out on their persecutors manifest in the, la in the latter's rebellion and ignorance, right? So those people, worshiping false idols, enacted violence on the Christians. But the Christians, the church, refused to discriminate against any other villagers allowing all to come and share in the clean, life-giving water from their well. As a result, some of the very people who banned them from using the central well have now started attending their worship services. This is the result of one persecuted community, always seeking the good through labors of love, Acts of faith, offering hope. Seeking the good, not only for each other, but also for all, even for those who were enemies. They were indeed a channel of God's love, a visible display of his character through which the God of peace was at work to change violent enemies into God's own children, reconciling them to himself and to their former victims. You know what is awesome? A church whose faith is observable through their embodied efforts of love, demonstrating hope to the world all around them. Awesome. I love to change nouns into verbs. Because sometimes nouns lose, lose their impact, right, after a while. But if you make them a verb, something happens, they jump out at you. So I'm going to ask you as we begin this, um, I'm going to change things at the end, guys. Um, as we begin this new series and begin this time of thinking about the church together, I'm going to ask you this question. How will you church this year? How will you church? How will you get involved in imitating Christ through imitating one another? What will that look like? Who will you hang out with? How frequently will you hang out with them? What are you going to do together? What kind of schemes will you cook up and come tell Joe and the staff, hey, we got the scheme, we're going to do this. We're trying to imitate Jesus. We're imitating one another. You're here, so we could say I'm preaching to the choir, but I don't think I'm preaching to the whole choir. 
I think for some of us, we still struggle. Why church? Why is it important? What does it do? The church will shape and form you into the very image and likeness of Jesus to participate. And as we do, as we engage again in faith and hope and love, it will impact everyone around us. Stand with me for the benediction, if you would. Can't do this on our own, so receive this benediction now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine by the power at work within us, the church. To him be praise in Christ Jesus and in the church throughout all generations. And the church said, amen, amen.